And I think the piece, I think it's a moment where the piece succeeds and that, and that sort of intellectually we can really understand that that's potentially an unsound point of view. Oh, so cowardly, so selfish. But coming from him in the moment that it does, in the scene that it does, I, I think it's like, you know, we can simultaneously like honor this man's experience and feeling while kind of being like, well, hey, that's not really what's going on. You know, so I think like, yeah, yeah. And everybody, yeah, I mean, everyone had their own relationship to this man and everyone had their own assumptions or sort of thoughts about what it means to take one's own life. Welcome back, my friends, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. If you've listened to the show for some time, you know I'm passionate about storytelling and the power narratives have in shaping how we see and experience the world around us, including our grief. I'm so grateful to have had the honor to have filmmakers, TV producers, memoirists, and folks who specialize in narrative practices on the show with me over these past few years. It's important that we see, hear, experience a wider range of grief stories that show the messy, beautiful, dynamic experience we go through in the wake of a variety of losses. That's why I'm thrilled to share my recent conversation with Asa Merritt. He's a former international reporter for NPR, Vice Sports, The Guardian, and ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast. Asa brings a compassionate documentary eye to ambitious fictional projects. In his most recent one, Six Sermons, a new Audible original series starring Stephanie Hsu from Everything Everywhere All at Once, Asa spent a month embedded with a team of pastors at a Lutheran church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Six Sermons is dedicated to the actor and musician Kaz Lisk, who died by suicide in Moscow in 2017. Asa weaves his own personal process of grappling with anger, frustration, sorrow, and confusion, just some of the feelings he experienced after the death of his friend, into a powerful narrative that models for all of us the messy, vulnerable, and important conversations we need to have to move forward with our grief, particularly in the wake of loss by suicide. Asa Merritt, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Thanks so much for your patience. It's been in the works for a while, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here too. Thank you for having me. It's phenomenal what you gifted us in the world from your own experience. And we're going to dive deep into that. The listeners have already heard a little bit about you and a little bit about your project, Six Sermons. Um, but I want to start our conversation where I start all of my conversations with my guests, and that's starting to have us unpack where we learned our grief beliefs. And for me, I recognize that it's usually it comes from some early loss we experience and how the adults in our lives were modeling grief, either explicitly, implicitly sort of teaching us about what we think grief should look or feel like. So I'm just curious when I invite you to think about an early memory of loss, one that comes to mind and sort of what you think you learned from the adults about about grief as sure. you know, as a result. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved um 
I was I was thinking about this and um you know uh so six sermons was very much inspired by the death of my friend who died by by suicide and in a lot of ways that was the first major loss in my life uh I think something that I had some sense of before it happened that I had been largely spared uh you know from a lot of loss that would engender intense grief um and it did make me reflect on a couple instances that did happen prior. The first real grief moment I, I remember acutely was, was I was in high school and I was in Rome with my Latin club um, for a week and uh, came back and my mom and my brother picked me up at the airport and uh, it was like a normal pickup and then like got to the parking lot and she's like, oh, my mom was like, oh, I have something to tell you, you know, like Grandpa Doc died. And I was like, what? Uh, and, and I just burst into tears. I was so angry. You know, he wasn't uh, on his deathbed. He wasn't in hospice. This was like not a known thing. And uh, it was, it was, yeah. The decision was made to like not bring me back, you know? Um, and I was very upset about that. Felt very like betrayed. Um, and I wasn't so, so close to him. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, I know a lot of folks have very close relationships with their grandparents and it wasn't that but it was one in which uh i would wanted to be there uh you know and it was like a real um yeah so that was kind of the first real kind of intense grief experience i had which to your point about kind of modeling and so on and so forth you know this was an example of other people deciding yeah. for you <laughs> what your like yeah. grief experience should be and they made a compelling case like my grandpa was very much this like person of the world and and they're like he you know he would have wanted you to stay through this trip da, 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 da. um yeah. but i was like that was my call <laughs> he's dead <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and i wanted to be there and then you know the other really big thing that happened and you know I'd love to hear some of your wisdom and experience about this, but this really blew me away and sort of expanded my knowledge of grief prior to my friend Kaz dying was this moment where I visited uh, a grave of my aunt who died very young. Um, Mm. She died. uh, I never met her. You know, she died in her thirties. My, that side of the family, there's five siblings. Um, this incredible tragedy and uh, there's a rift in the family over the death. Like there was a, a malpractice situation and one of the kids wanted to sue the hospital and the others didn't da, 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 da. And, you know, I'd never met that aunt because she's estranged. And so, and, and, you know, obviously mentions of this aunt would happen over the years and my mom and my aunts and uncles would, would, would get upset and there'd be some tears and so on. But like generally, not fully discussed and i came upon this grave and just completely started uh just weeping um Mm. to my like surprise because this was a person i'd never met never known you know and it just really clarified for me um a lot of ideas around sort of shared trauma or collective grief or generational is like oh my gosh this is so part of me and it's really only been kind of periphery and like anecdotal that I sort of have come to understand this person and what their loss meant to my mother, to my, to my family. Um, 
And so those are the two things that come to mind when I talk about or when I think about early grief experiences. And then, of course, my friend's uh, suicide. You know, those are the two things that really stick out, you know, when I when yeah. when your question, like, what do you think of in the early grief experiences? Here comes yeah. the uh, here comes the garbage. Yeah, there's a bell. Yeah, there's a bell in the background. We knew it was coming. We knew it was maybe coming. that's your aunt. <laughs> there Just she come is. to visit us. There she is. You know, one of the things that came up for me when you were telling that story about feeling like surprisingly moved as you come upon the grave of your aunt, given that she wasn't in your life, she was sort of estranged. It sounds like there was a lot of mystery and anger and frustration and et cetera around her death is, you know, I do think that we, of course, we, we carry when, if we don't work with our own grief, we pass it along for other people to carry and do the work, right? We know that the same thing is true about trauma. I also wonder though, so like when you came upon her grave, like, are you in a way carrying the grief of so many people in your family who maybe you didn't get to share that collective grief over her because you didn't get to know it and maybe they weren't expressive in the way that you might've hoped. But I also think, and I, I just, sort of pivot a little bit to our listeners when I say this, because I, I've come across this often before, which is sometimes when we come to grips with or kind of come face to face with the loss of someone we didn't know well, you talked about even not knowing your grandfather that well, or your aunt who you didn't know well, some of what I think we're grieving is the chance that we never are going to get to know them and also the realization that we never did know them. Like we grieve the fact that we weren't the family who were close with all of our extended relatives. And I think that grief is really profound too, um, not just for just to move through it and to let it out. But I do think grief is a teacher of then how do we want to live with what we have left in our life? And if we come to grips with the fact that we're grieving over these missed chances, you know, in these other relationships. So just an offering to you, to the listeners to think about, you know, those missed opportunities. And that's what we might be grieving. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That really resonated yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I came upon you when I learned before the release, actually, the uh, learned of this incredible podcast, but I don't, that's podcast isn't even the right. It's a series. It's an audible series called Six Sermons which listeners, the link is in the show notes. Seriously, when you're done listening to this conversation, you need to set aside some time for this extraordinarily performed story that you wrote. But before we sort of get to the story and how and how and why it came to be, I'd love for you to bring Kaz into the room, if you will. Just tell us a little bit about how you met, your friendship, and sort of what transpired that led you to be in this place of of deep grief and wanting to find this creative outlet for your story. But I always like to remind, uh, invite people to tell us about the person's life too, and not just focus on their death too. So anything you want us to know about. Oh Kat, yeah. That's such how a, you met. What a, what a gift. Uh, you know, thank you for that, for this opportunity. Yeah. I, I mean, Kaz, I met when my senior year of college and uh, I met him in Russia. I studied abroad in Russia and spent a lot of time in Russia. And he was an RA of sorts in this dorm okay. where I was living. It was an incredibly intimate um, 
study abroad program is for a conservatory there. So I was studying dance okay. and acting. There was only 12 of us. Um, oh, and wow. so it was just very intimate and accelerated friendships, you know, because you're making all this art and so on together. Yeah. And you yeah. know, he was very much part of that. Um, there's cats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, I mean, yeah. And I just, it was, it was like, you know, you're, you're, you're in this artistic crucible making things and like trying, you know, bearing your soul on stage. And, and I was madly in love with a classmate, um, you know, and, uh, he was just this kind of big brother slash ally, uh, you know, fully, uh, supporting my like sophomoric passion and trying to protect <laughs> my feelings. And, you know, so that was like the foundation. And I went on to visit Russia many times, many subsequent. He 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 was American, um, but he had really built a career as an artist there. So I went, okay. I visited Russia many times um, to see him, to go see theater together. Da 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 da. Um, before he died, he we we were working together on a documentary here mm. in the states, um, in Tennessee. This really profound story um, about this man who developed a letter correspondence with the person who um murdered his daughter and this is incredible tale of forgiveness um hector black is the name of that man if you google that name there's been various yeah. kind of reporting and stories about that anyway so that was really the final time that i spent with him was a week um in the woods uh in tennessee wow. with that guy uh me kaz another friend the three of us were shooting this film and so uh, I'd say that was a really, you know, I think back on that time um, because it just, um, you know, because it was so soon before his death and it was such a special project, da, 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 da. but in terms of connecting it to sort of the grief, uh, that particular chapter astonishes me because it was just such, if there was any possible time, I think that someone who was incredibly private about their inner struggles would open up and share. It was there, you know, there was no cell phone service. He was among two of his best friends. You know, we're, we're, we're like the whole context is one of vulnerability and honesty making this documentary. Yeah. And there's just like no emotional transparency at all, you know, and sort of the foundation of our relationship had been like all the way back where I'm like, I love her so much and I feel all these things, you know, and that like pattern persisted for like the 15 years that followed, you know, I was always like yeah. very um, kind of uh, completely vulnerable and exposed uh, with my own feelings. And, and then it's just sort of like, sort of, wow, that was like actually never fully reciprocated. And then specifically that little chapter that week in Tennessee, yeah. the last time we spent together. Um Yeah. Was like That's no what I was going to ask you. Was that, yeah. was that him not being open and sharing, when you look back, consistent across your 15 years of friendship? Or would when you look back, did that time seem I think it specifically? Was, you know, I think that was. Okay. And then, you know, hindsight's 20. I feel very kind of like, yeah. um, embarrassed isn't the right word, but kind of like, oh, so obvious. And, and you know, um, yeah. just, just like, well, of course he didn't talk about it because he never really fully yeah. showed what was he he felt and certainly like hard things that he was feeling you know yeah. so that's who he was i mean he was extraordinary you know he was kind of a 
his death made the papers in Moscow. You know, he was kind of a, a B-list type celebrity almost. You know, so very, he was a performer, a creator, a dancer, yeah, a musician, yeah. a musician, oh, musician. and uh, a musician, actor, um, just very much a man about town. You know, his partner, his wife yeah. was an established actor is, you know, established yeah. Russian actress okay. and so on. And, um, you know, so, you know, he, he, he was, he was really, 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 um, you know, it was kind of brilliant. You know, I know people throw that yeah. word around, but, you know, somebody who could play all the instruments and spoke five languages and just sort of, there was nothing he could yeah. do not well. Um, yeah. so sort of an yeah. exceptional person. Um, and how did you come to learn of his passing and what, and tell us a little as, as much as you want to tell us about that. Sure. And, and I mean, what was your sort of initial reaction? Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's definitely one of those moments that, you know, you just. Before and after. Well, and I was going to say, like, you can just remember, you know, these, like, everyone knows where they were when the, when the Twin Towers fell or, you know, these yeah. kind of just yeah. the, the, the memory and the time and the place and the feeling and like the air is so acute. Yeah. I mean, I just got a phone call, um, you know, like 530 in the morning. And, you know, one of those real kismetty kind of things where my phone incidentally was on that day and so on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, just a friend, a friend, a friend called me. This I, That same friend who was the third of us who was in Tennessee okay. on that project. Um, and yeah, I was just, I, you know, I had a real visceral response. You know, I was really sort of just angry and, and uh, I was very angry. I mean, the ver like didn't believe him, right? It was just like, I thought that this was... Uh, angry at him you know it's not like i didn't believe him obviously you know in a moment like that there's all kinds of your system is firing on so many different of its engines yeah. currently you yeah. know so it was one of those moments trying to but protect yeah, just, yourself from this reality yeah. yeah 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 you know just just so many emotions at once just this explosive cocktail of, of like disbelief and, and rage and and uh just like the months and years of uh kind of what happens next, I guess. Um, yeah. And for me, you know, that journey really only um, became a good one and a productive one until I started writing this show, Six Sermons, right? And that was an opportunity um, to just give words to all these feelings, to like, to like distill that cocktail into its component yeah. parts and know yeah. what the heck it was and kind of, uh, and just by writing the show, by giving pastor Alexis, this, the, the lead, um, access to say everything she wanted to say, you know, to, to, to do all the things like yeah. to be so angry, to be self, like to be kind of like, make it about you. And like, you know, to do all these things that are, that we all do in grief in the wake of loss, particularly, I think, in the wake of a death by suicide when there's so many unanswered questions. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, yeah. yes, it is just I mean, it's 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 a story you've heard before. It's like you sort of write through it, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's what happened. Well, that was one of my questions was sort of the space between Kaz's death and the time you either very consciously or subconsciously realize the only way I'm going to work through this is to start writing about it or to create something about it. What was the, was it months or years or? I want to say a, it wasn't that long. I want to say um, maybe nine months later or something okay. like that, you know, um, yeah. is when I first and, got the and that. And when you look back, you think, obviously you are a journalist and you 
make films. And so like writing and, and creating is not, you know, not all of us would sit down and write a, you know, audible pod series podcast, but that form was obviously close to your heart and to your skill set. But when you sat down to write it, was it more about trying to figure out what you kind of process your grief and figure out what you thought and say the things you wanted to say or I mean, I think it's like uh I mean it's real tricky. Uh you know, if you're trying to write a piece of entertainment yeah. fundamentally, even the hard hitting yeah. stuff, you know, it's it's gotta be like a story, right? Yeah. Like what you can't do is write you know, an op-ed and expects people right. to listen to 12 episodes of that, yeah. you know? Right. So it's, right. it's holding for me, it's holding this balance of like, I knew that this was going to come out in the show. Yeah. Um, but perhaps with a little bit less deliberate, deliberateness than what you just yeah. articulated. It's like, I know this is here, you know, yeah. but first I've got to tell a compelling story and, you know, the origins of the story. It, it was a, a wedding of like this kind of, I knew somehow I needed to write about suicide and Kaz's suicide. The other half <laughs> of the impetus for six sermons was a gig I was doing. It was a freelance audio gig for a seminary. And I was just, you know, it was just like a project. And, uh, but, but I was listening to all these sermons and I was like, whoa, this is such great audio. A sermon yeah. makes really like can make really yeah. sort of dynamic audio. So then yeah. it just kind of like, okay, well, you know, uh, sort of like faith and the intellectual rigor of religion is like a really exciting kind of, um, way into investigating, obviously, an extent existential, you know, what does it mean when your best friend kills herself? Like, blah, you know, like that's yeah. existential. Yeah. And so it all kind of came together and then a story came out of it. And then once you're in it is when I really started getting into like the deepest feelings you know i think like that's when like once the skeleton of the story in the frame yeah. and then i'm in her shoes you know that's when all that processing that you just described did come out yeah um yeah and i knew it would that's, that's the kind of thing like i knew it would like yeah yeah there's no way you're gonna write as create a story about someone trying to grapple with the death by suicide having just lost your very good friend to suicide and not yeah. Yeah. You sort of built an artifice. You know, some of us create rituals so that we can be close to our experiences and our memory. You created this, yeah. you know, incredible altar in a way, like to be able to process what was going on. That wasn't necessarily your intention, but we all find our way. We all have to find our way into uh, totally. being with, yeah. being with what is, what is happening. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to pause here for a minute to think through. There's sort of two avenues. I really want to dive into the incredible dialogue and depth and characters that you created with Pastor Alexis and Will Hoyt and Carl and Monica, like all the people who got to sort of, I think, really show us the ways in which any of us who've experienced profound loss, 100% of us, you know, can look around the circle of people in our lives and recognize a Pastor Alexis or a Carl or a Monica or a Teresa or, a, you know what I mean? Like we, we all have those people who are using their own grief style to process or not process what's happening. So I just love the architecture of the characters that you created and the dialogue. And I, I do want to dig into that 
a little bit more, but I think there's this lens that you brought into the story, of course, about your own personal experience with the death of Kaz, but there's another loss that comes into this experience of you producing an audio podcast series, which is the fact that you are deaf in your left ear and have experienced and continue to experience the impact of that profound loss. So before we sort of dive into six sermons, just can you tell me a little bit about how you came to that loss and what even that loss and grief, how that's showing up in this, in your life, in this project? When we come back, Asa admits he's still coming to grips with the loss of his hearing in one ear and explores the impact that has on his approach to storytelling. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhaver. Friends, I'm focusing on three C's in 2024. And no, not the C cancer, that C I've been enduring all of 2023. My focus for 2024 is these three C's, connection, collaboration, and celebration. Why am I telling you that? Well, my friend, that's because I want to connect and celebrate with you this year. As I've shared in previous episodes, my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is now available for pre-order. Seriously, this still gives me the chills every time I say it. As a first-time author, I'm learning that pre-orders of the book are really important to show bookstores, which happens to be my favorite place to hang out, and my publisher, that the shelves need to be stocked fully when the book drops June 4th. So I realize this is a perfect opportunity to rock two of the C's I'm focusing on in 2024, connect and celebrate. On May 22nd, which also happens to be my birthday, I'm hosting a book launch party celebration, and I'd love to have you join me. After the show, all you need to do is visit your favorite online bookseller like bookshop.org, amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com and pre-order a copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, an uncensored guide to navigating loss. Then make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW. That's Lisa K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R-M-S-W. And drop me a DM there to let me know you pre-ordered your copy and I'll share the party invite link with you. I can't wait to meet you, to thank you for supporting the show and, of course, the book, answer questions about the book, dish about behind the scenes of the podcast, and more. And, of course, just take some time to celebrate our lives together. Plus, I've invited a very special guest to join me as co-host. I can't wait to share that reveal with you soon. So after you've pre-ordered your copy of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch on your favorite online bookseller, don't forget to message me on Insta that you did. I'll send you the party invite link and the first of my many thank yous for your support. I know it's just a Zoom party, but I think I'm going to get dressed up in something fun and festive. How about you? I want to share a formula with you that I think you might find interesting. 100% of us experience grief. Plus, we spend the majority of our waking hours in the workplace equals grief is in your workplace right now. 
It's true. Remember, it's not just death loss. We experience grief in the wake of relationships ending, diagnoses, layoffs, high turnovers, restructuring, relocations, and even frightening and traumatic world events. Having been both an employee and a leader in deep grief over the years, five years ago I set out to create impactful programming that helps organizations create a grief-smart and more compassionate culture. I've been fortunate over the years to deliver keynote addresses for mental health conferences, partnered with school districts to offer half-day intensives for educators, and offered ongoing workshop series on grief, loss, burnout, resiliency for a wide range of clients from Fortune 500 companies to medical residency programs, hospice organizations, and other social service entities. Conference planners have invited me to lead Ask the Expert panels, and leaders have also trusted me to offer consultation on specific situations facing their company. The surprising thing that they all had in common, it's that these opportunities all came from listeners like you. So if you're part of an organization or company that is impacted by grief, which, as we learned in the formula in the beginning, that means all of us reach out to me at lisakiefover.com and we can work together to make your organizational culture grief smart. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I I I I, I, I got to listen. I got to learn. I mean, this this is like an area where I I I haven't. I'm still like learning uh, to, yeah, to grieve yeah. this, and it's still very um, raw. When when did the when did you discover the tumor originally? Yeah. When? So basically, uh, this tumor, which is a benign tumor, but nevertheless is a tumor that doesn't stop growing, and um, was growing in my middle ear. Uh, mm. first started like eight years ago, I guess it would have been. Um, okay. and, uh, yeah, just one of these weird things, you know, just couldn't hear. <laughs> so I went to go get my hearing checked and they're like, oh yeah, you can't hear over here. You should go see a doctor, you know? And then of course, yeah. And then, you know, you learn about it and it's some weird, rare tumor that, you know, they don't know why it happens or anything like that. And, um, right. always the answer you want to hear. Like, well, exactly. like we don't know. This is exactly. Like, you know. Exactly. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, it's just been a long and frustrating sort of care road. You know, I had a number of surgeries, which seemed successful, a number of surgeries where they removed the tumor and my hearing was restored, but unfortunately the surgeries didn't completely remove the tumor. And so it grew back and then there was another, you know, so yeah, I did this a number of times. And then finally the most recent one, um, you know, the, you know, we decided beforehand, it's like, listen, like, you can't be going into, you know, four hour surgeries every two years, like, you know, yeah, it's uh, not sustainable for all kinds yeah. of reasons. Um, yeah. So we're going to remove the bones, we're going to remove the bones that the tumor is growing on. Um, that way it can't grow uh, back. Right. Okay. So hitherto, they had just been lasering it off the bones. And gotcha. in this case, but there like, was leaving enough cells that it was. Yeah, growing they did. They were yeah. doing the best they can. And they were always very um, confident. They're like, OK, I'm just, you know, we got it. Um, yeah, but they didn't. And so this time around, we we took the bones out, which, you know, um, so it had been kind of a roller coaster of of, oh, I'm, I have my hearing back. And then like with each month, yeah. it get a little bit worse because the tumor's growing back. And so th- this this past surgery, though, I guess, which was 
maybe a year and a half ago, you know, that's when I really, I have no hearing now in my left ear because, because they took the bones out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, there's so much ambiguity in that journey. You know, we talk a lot about ambiguous grief and people face that when they have someone, you know, who is missing in action or maybe has an addiction or maybe, you know, Alzheimer's or, you know, and some anticipatory loss, like you think it's losing, but you're not sure. And you sounds like you kept thinking maybe it was all going to be restored. So that's a lot to hold that ambiguity all that time. Oh, that's you know? so interesting. I've never even yeah. gotten anywhere near that concept and ambiguous yeah. grief. That is so cool. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely right because you can't fully mourn until it's gone in some ways. Because right? you it's sort of like, thought maybe it would come back or you had partial hearing yeah. or you weren't really sure sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the kind of disorientation that comes from, you know, um, I at least, you know, sort of put a lot of faith in doctors and and these, you know, I felt very comfortable with these doctors and they very genuinely felt um, so confident. And and, and actually, that was this whole kind of thing that I'd never seen and something that um, I'm sure they didn't just their own sense. Like they were so disappointed uh, that these surgeries had failed. And it was just like, you know, doctors, they do such a good job of like keeping the, keeping, you know, the, the strong face. Like the facade. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, one of these times we were there together when this, when she was like looking at the scan, I could just see her face changing when she saw the tumor on the scan. And I was like, felt so bad yeah. for her. Um, oh. but in any event, I mean, it was exactly that, right? It was, it was kind of like you, you have a timeline, you set a timeline. You're like, okay, yeah. I'm going to endure this. And then you sort of, yeah. you have your benchmarks and, and you, you can yeah. like celebrate and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, so there is something nice <laughs> about the seeming <laughs> like permanence of, of this past one. That said, there is more to the story. As long as the tumor doesn't come back in a couple of years, right. I will be able to get implants. Like there is the end of this story. Okay. I would get my hearing back in a few more years. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. But, you know, <laughs> it's like, we'll but in see. the meantime, you sort of live in this ambiguous. Yeah. Cause I've been space, told that before. Right? Right? I've been told that before. So it's, right. it's, it's just sort yeah. of, um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's been, and, and, and it's been such a journey because it's just uh, a- another thing that it took me like years to do is to acknowledge that it really sucks to only have hearing in one year, you know, such a good sport about it always just kind of glass half full, you know, a very, a very kind of like stereotypically like yeah. American kind of buoyancy yeah. about the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. And then like, finally I was like, attitude of gratitude and yes. just, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, actually yeah. this is terrible. <laughs> right. So that was actually like, um, that's been part of this. I mean, like I said, I'm still very much. How recently did out. you finally come to giving yourself permission to have the, and- I call that the and where it, my listeners know we talk about that all the time and is tattooed on my body. Like there's the, and like, yes, it's grateful. I have hearing and there's good things and fucking sucks. Yeah. So when did you get to the, and when did you give yourself permission to have the, and I think like six months after this final surgery, because my hearing had bad, had been equally bad prior to like, you know, when the tumor had been at its biggest, I mean, it was pretty comparable how my hearing was gone. But something about gotcha. the finality of the last one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, years, <laughs> you know, it took many years uh, yeah. to acknowledge, yeah. um, you know, um, and yeah, it's radically changed my life. I mean, the experience of only having uh, one ear is really different from uh, traditional hearing loss. 
And the reason why we have two ears, we have two ears for two. This is like our little fun science yeah, lesson please. Of, the, of the episode. Yes, please, please. We have, uh, you know, we have two ears for two reasons, two main reasons. One is um, to know where sound is coming from, uh, to know what sure. direction sound is coming from. So okay. a perfect example of, of, a, of a frustration, like, you know, if you can't find your phone, you call your phone. Yeah. That doesn't work for me because I don't know where it's ringing. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we have two ears. The other reason, and I'd say this is even more central to folks who are experiencing like hearing loss in one ear, is that we have two ears so that we can concentrate on one sound among many, right? So our brain very organically, if you're in a coffee shop having a conversation, your brain is very organically tuning out the silverware, the cars on the street, the other conversations. That ambient noise in the background, yeah. Yeah, so if you only have one ear, none of that is being tuned out. Um, And so it takes enormous work to listen. And the irony is, yeah, I mean, the world is much, much louder um, for me. I I, I walk around with an earplug in my good ear. All the time, like literally, unless I'm in a home or a room, I'm wearing an yeah. earplug. Movies, like everything, because it's just there's so much loud. It's or like the the world is so loud. You um, can't filter in the way that you can when you have ear- hearing in both. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I really, I really avoid parties, like you know, uh, concerts. So there's like, a real imp- I mean, talk about secondary losses. There's a real impact to this primary loss of your hearing in terms without of a your- doubt. How you move through the world and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I take a yeah. nap every day now, which, you know, I think is great period, but I think it's yeah. like a direct reaction. Like just, I think there's just, just a the base. exhaustion of yeah, having exactly. to make that effort. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what it is to only have yeah. hearing in, in one, in one, uh, ear. And of course, professionally it had big implications, you know, because and make audio and work in audio and and uh I was just going to say that feels a, a particularly I don't know what the word is it's like ironic or cruel or something that the fact that that's the impact there and I wonder then what does that what have you figured out about still being in audio does it make you appreciate things more has it ha- caused you to just adapt in ways you didn't think was possible you know yeah, I mean, or you're still my, in the this sucks part. Per my glass half full attitude, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think it does. I mean, it just is like sound has and, and now means so many more things to me, right? Yeah. And as someone who did have the experience of formerly having full hearing, right? There's there's sort of context, right? I mean, it's obviously really yeah. different for folks who are say born deaf, or you know, like, and so yeah. sound has come to mean more things. To me, it's like, oh, it can be this, but it can also be that, um, which actually is very fertile creatively. You know, if you're making, uh, if you're telling stories through sound, it's like, oh, whoa, actually, this can actually sound way... Like, we have an idea. If you, like, imagine in your mind's eye being in a cafe and hearing it, it's like, you know, I can now remember how it sounds. (laughs) <laughs> before and i know how it sounds now so it's kind of you know i mean i think that uh it's in terms of my work and fiction and all that um yeah it's you know there's there's 
interesting things to mine, uh, you know, despite, yeah. despite the sort of personal despite that, challenges. Yeah. And I ask that not to listeners, you know, I'm not into toxic positivity at all. I am an and person. And so that was just sort of that invitation. And you might, your answer might have been, it didn't teach me anything. I hated it sucks. And that would be okay too. It's just how do we as individuals moving through loss and experiencing all the secondary losses, because every primary loss has its whole, you lose relationships, you lose your home, you lose your identity. Like there's lots of things we lose is periodically for us to, if we find ourselves sort of gazing into the taking inventory of all the things that we've lost to sort of look forward in a different direction and say, is there something here that's offering me something that I want to focus on or that I'm as a gain or as a creative outlet or something like that. So it's not the like trying to make it all shiny, happy object there, but I appreciate you being able to name your, your sort of half glass full personality totally right there with you and um, give yourself permission for the both and there. Yeah. Yeah. So here you are having this profound loss. You are, you are writing this fictional story where you are sort of bringing in the context or the backdrop of the church with how are you going to process how a community reckons with a death, in particular, a death by suicide by doing an audio original series. Had you done one before? Why that format versus a play versus just a novel? Like what, what tell us a little bit why six sermons was specifically um, needed to be this audio series by the way sure. your sound with like the people mumbling in the background sometimes while the primary actors were talking and the no all the noise it was just the layering now that i rec- realize i sort of didn't know about your hearing loss until after i finished six sermons is so interesting to me of the layers of sound that you put in there for the listener fyi but but why this format why sure, this story yeah. in this I mean, format it, yeah it, it, it like some for very practical professional reasons and others for very creative reasons. You know, I mean, my, my professional aspirations have been since college in dramatic writing, you know, I studied playwriting, all that good stuff. Um, but I became a journalist. I was working as a journalist, you know, for a while and found a degree of, you know, somewhat, um, sort of high level success working in nonfiction audio. And so it just sort of opened doors. And so it was kind of an opportunity, you know, sort of success in that space enabled some yeah. introductions and some email addresses where all of a sudden it was like, Hey, take this guy seriously. Da, da, da. And so there was yeah. kind of, um, you know, a receptiveness that, that like s- coupled with the fact that, um, from an industry point of view, particularly five years ago, some extent today, but way more five years ago, this was such an emerging space. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. radio plays have been around forever and, and there's been a lot of yeah. independent work in audio fiction, but in terms of commercial audio fiction projects on a platform yeah. like Audible, they, yeah. you know, it no. was kind of an open door. And so, you know, so, so, so yeah. there was an expediency to it. Um, yeah. But I love the show's audio. You know, I mean, it would be great if it goes to TV. They're talking about that. That would be super cool. Okay. All of the above. Yeah. But I very much wrote it for the form. And like I just said, like sermons are incredible audio. You know, I mean, no one wants to watch a sermon on TV. 
you know, maybe yeah. if you go and, you know, if you're a church goer and you have an incredible pastor, then the live experience yeah. is incredible. But like the gift of fiction is you can dramatize these things. And then I think another critical audio element of the show is the prayers. So, you know, I don't think there's a more elegant way to articulate someone praying than in this format, you know, um, yeah. because you really feel like you're inside their head. There's the, there's the, yeah. and you're not distracted by the visual of them doing, being in a position of kneeling or whatever. Yeah, you're none really, of that. None of that. I, you really felt like, I mean, we yeah. really felt, I've really felt that I was in Pastor Alexis's head when she was grappling with God about, you know, William Hoyt and all yeah. the different things. Yeah. You really exactly. do feel that in audio. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, yeah. I mean, creatively, I just think, you know, this is, this is, a maximum, maximum, if not a cliche, right? Like every story has its form through which it's best told, you know, and sort of kind of like, oh, the story really, <clears throat> it was this convergence of, oh, hey, there's opportunities in audio fiction slash like, yeah. oh, there's, here's the story that would really be special if told through audio. And I think those are the two big places, the sermons and the prayers that really sing as audio um, in ways that they yeah. could succeed as prose in a novel um, but are more visceral and compelling as audio. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. And I do think if, when it comes to screen or stage or whatever, there will be a whole amazing gifts and layers of being able to see the emotionality of people. But I think to me as a consumer, especially a consumer who's interested in seeing the stories of grief and loss, ones that I might resonate with, you know, or seeing or hearing, I see, I just use the word see and hearing um, the story of grief and loss, having it be audio only, I think made me pay attention in a way, right? That I wouldn't maybe if there was also the visual element of the show. Like I really had to listen extra hard. My, I mean, not maybe unlike what you're talking about with your loss of hearing. It's like I had to listen and I put an effort to really be with the story in a different way that had a, an incredible payoff that's different than watching something on screen. Um, and I felt very connected to the characters because of listening just to their emotionality, of course, performed by brilliant award-winning, you know, actors. So that's incredible. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the different characters in the show. You all are going to listen to the whole series. So we probably will try not to do any spoiler alerts here, but you know, you did set this story of a pastor dying by suicide, much to like, as you were sort of saying, a about Kaz, much to the surprise of everybody in their life, including the young new pastor who he was training and mentoring to sort of take his place. Tell us a little bit about your choice for the different characters and, and what were they representing sort of in this profound story of grappling with these yeah, questions I, I, around grief. Yeah, let's see. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Asa reveals the way he used his characters from the young pastor to the congregants and other community members to reveal the messy reality of loss in the wake of death by suicide including the culture of secrecy, the awkward conversations, the frustration of the unanswered questions, and so much more.
Would you like to stay in touch with me off the air? I know I'd love to connect with you more for sure. Maybe you're looking for some grief support tips or some behind-the-scenes content from the pod. Maybe you'd like to know the sources of my own learning about grief and what it means to survive and thrive in the world in the wake of loss. I'd love to share all of that with you. So here are a few quick ways to make sure we stay connected. First, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter by visiting lisakefover.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E, F-A-U-V-E-R dot com forward slash newsletter. Just in case you're curious, it's called that because, like grief, this newsletter isn't on a schedule. Second, just head over to your favorite socials like Instagram and follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'm doing my best to post at grief as a sneaky bitch on Instagram too. We'll see how that goes this season. I offer a lot of candid shares there about myself, about the podcast, my work as a grief activist, and of course, my forthcoming book. And third, you know the drill by now. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast platform so I pop up on your screen the minute the next episode drops. Friends, I'm excited to share something. This new season of the podcast, season five, I'll be dropping episodes weekly. Yes, you heard me correctly. New episodes will drop each week. So make sure that you're follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode when it drops. If you're not sure how to do that, you simply head to the Grief is a Sneaky Bitch show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, and then tap the plus sign in the upper right-hand corner or click the follow button. After that, if this podcast means something to you, if it's helped you in some way, why not leave a five-star rating and write a review? You could also click the share button and send the show to a friend who might need it too. I appreciate every one of you for listening, subscribing, and sharing the show. Yeah, I think like, you know, everyone, I think it just part of the show is what it's trying to do is be like, no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> no one knows how to yeah. grieve. No one knows how yeah. to grieve. Not even a pastor. Right. right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, and so I really tried to commit and face like the messiness of yeah. failed grieving and uh, just you know putting your foot in your mouth like saying the wrong thing to somebody who died of suicide um you know we read these like think pieces like five things not to say to someone yeah and it's like yeah well cool like maybe i didn't read that (laughs) or like you know and so you know or my emotions took over and i even though i knew that intellectually i needed to express this yeah i loved the messiness of people's you know saying stupid shit as i say or you know just saying the things that they once they knew better, they wouldn't have said, but you yeah, know, that's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a real yeah. project of the piece is that like, it's better to communicate and strive to yeah. connect or bridge because in like, you know, one should, even if it's messy, exactly. And just messy. have confidence yeah. that like, there is another side and like, you know, yeah. like even if it goes, sideways like you know the only way out is through and like yeah Yeah. we don't we don't we don't have a lot of 
skills and stuff and we can do our best and listen to great podcasts like these but you know we just <laughs> might not have uh we know we might not have um kind of uh what am i trying to say embodied all those lessons when 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 yeah. when, when faced with it so i think monica for example she's a teenager in the show um yeah and really tries to support Alexis, who's clearly suffering deeply. But I mean, she's a teenager and she's kind of, you know, um, has feelings for Alexis and kind of is just, is not equipped. <laughs> it's just yeah. terribly. She, she wants to, it's, you feel the sort of teenage angst about her, but her care for Alexis and, but she represents a lot of us who want to try, but kind of get, make it about us and kind of get in our own way and say the yeah. awkward thing. And yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, I think she's an important character in this in terms of, of, uh, oh, this, this, we could see us in the, that stuff. I mean, but yes, I mean, all the characters have their orientation to it, which is super familiar. I mean, just, just, um, you know, the characters, Pastor Hoyt, who's the one who dies by suicide, his brother, there's like, he, you know, <laughs> yeah, his, his position is this intense, um, sort of disdain, uh, for, you know, for, for, for the death, um, and, and the very kind of classic, um, you know, it, it's, it's so selfish sentiment, um, you know, but I, and, and like, and I think the piece, I think it's a moment where the piece succeeds and that and that sort of intellectually we can really understand that that's potentially an unsound point of view. Oh, so cowardly, so selfish, but coming from him in the moment that it does and the scene that it does, I, I think it's like, you know, we can simultaneously like honor this man's experience and feeling while kind of being like, well, hey, that's not really what's going on, you know? So I think yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. And everybody, yeah. I mean, everyone had their own relationship to this man and everyone had their own assumptions or sort of thoughts about what it means to take one's own life. Um, you know, and, uh, and all those sort of thoughts and assumptions are then like, okay, well, it's not an idea anymore. Now it's happening. And some people changed and some people didn't. But yeah, I mean, I think like the diversity, like all these characters, those are a couple examples of those kinds of orientations yeah. that they brought to the event. And then in the course of the show evolved. Yeah, I did appreciate, as I said, when you all listen to this series, which again, I highly recommend you do, you'll probably see yourselves, even if you haven't experienced a death by suicide, but just experienced a profound loss, you'll see yourself and the people in your life in these different characters. You may hear conversations that sound a lot like the conversations you had in your own lives, but hopefully in a way that helps you learn or see or feel affirmed that we're all, it's all just a messy muck and we're doing the best we can, you know, to move our way through. You, and I think this didn't need to happen because it was in the church, although certainly it happened in the church. One of the storylines that you brought forward, which I think is the thing that so many of us grapple with when we've lost somebody to death by suicide was these forces who didn't want to tell the world that it was a death by suicide. And Pastor Alexis in particular, feeling that that was exactly what, I mean, 
I don't want to give away all the details, but she knew that that was really what uh, William Hoyt wanted her to do was, and for, for, to cause the congregation, therefore, in the community to really have a grappling with death by suicide. Did you, did that come from sort of personal experience where you're drawing on that sort of from our meta conflict between do we talk about it or not talk about it? How did you weave in that story of sort of conflict over do we name it as death by suicide or not? And what do we gain if we do? Or Yeah, I mean, there was certainly obfuscation around the cause of Kaz's death, yeah. which really gotcha. upset me. Um, yeah. So the price of that kind of, you know, denial, uh, or at least, um, hiding, uh, was something I, was something I felt because that really did, um, hamper my ability to grieve. You know, I, I remember going to the service, uh, you know, there was the, the, the funeral was in Russia and then there was a service in the States later. Um, and I, I was just utterly shocked that there was no mention of this in the entire service, which, which really, um, I just felt so ashamed, uh, like mourning the way I was because this sort of the, the kind of tenor and, and frame of this memorial sermon was inconsistent, which with like the, like the, the way the truth that, of I what needed, happened. Yeah. that I needed to yeah. grieve. And like, I was really relying on that service to be with other people, to have that grief moment. And it was very, um, Mm. it wasn't available right so i mean there i definitely that came from personal kind of experience just the cost yeah. of that um i really did in the show though try to it's like yes pastor alexis from the jump knew it was going to be important to share that but i really did want to um kind of show the other side and and um you know make the case like really play it out on both sides that there are real consequences also um yeah to sharing this information and that's part of a whole larger conversation which of course like the media has done a relatively good job over the last decades i think of having this conversation with itself you know we no longer see in in you know major publications at least so and so you know uh you know jump you know die you know it's just like so and so died right and then you have to get four pages in or i'm sorry paragraphs like you know before they're like yeah it's yeah. likely that they did this. He was found with, you know, and so that there's, um, you know, I think generally kind of, uh, there's been a relatively like, so we've seen progress in desensationalizing. Um, yeah. But there is a lot of like scary, scary research about suicide contagion, you know, um, and, you know, it's not hard. It's not that hard to understand why people would think that. Um, and I try in the show, I try to like find the most, legitimate reasons to hold that opinion yeah. right i think a really yeah. cheap reason is like oh shame or whatever but it's like well maybe there are like public safety concerns like what is this um yeah and so yeah like i think if you really drill down into the implications of not revealing what happened and the implications of revealing what happened and push those to their worst case on each side yeah. it leads to good drama you know, and that's what I tried to do. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's just, it, that's a story that so many people can relate to. I mean, you know, whether or not, um, you know, if someone, uh, you know, 
if you've lost someone to suicide or, 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 or two degrees away, I mean, I think also a lot of people have seen like the teacher, or the kid in high school, or like they know yeah. about this thing that like everyone says, you know, like in the paper, it says this, but like, we all know this. And it's kind of like everyone, I think, or not everyone, many have sort of experienced um, sort of kind of what, how a suicide is, is represented or not represented publicly. Yeah. 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 And then that teaches us all something. First of all, as you said, your experience in the sermon, I think, is, or in the service was something that so many of us experience when it's not made public is that it's already hard enough to find a, a play a safe container for our grief, a person, a place, a group, nature, however we do it. It's already hard enough to do that. And then when we can't do it, authentically and honestly and talk about our rage at the person and our sorrow at the person and our fear, you know, then it's even more othering and even more isolating. Um, and so I think I do appreciate the way you sort of offer different points of view on what can happen, but had this sort of through line of, of um, recognizing that to name these things is to give us a chance to come to grips with you know, our own grief, but also all of our own fears and the fact that more of us have suicidal ideation than we talk about. And if we, if we, if you're someone who's having suicidal ideation and you see that everybody changes the subject and they don't mention that it was a death by suicide, then you're probably much less likely to come forward to somebody and say, Hey, I'm having some of these thoughts. Can we, is there somewhere I can go to talk about it? So, um, yeah, anyhow, I just, so appreciated the way you brought together that very common kind of confrontation, but you did as you, I think I feel you succeeded in your hopes, which is to really play out the arguments sort of to their full, bring validity to all sides and show again the messiness of it. Like this is a messy endeavor to be uh, with death and with grief and particularly when it's uh, around a death by suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it was hard to write, but it it was fun to write. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, yeah, all, all these yeah. roads are are exciting ones to explore. And so, when you were now the show's been out, it has some success. It sounds like maybe there's, you know, there it's going to show up in kind of other formats and places. Listening to it over again, or just hearing feedback from different people, are there? Is it allowing you to? see a new level of something that you learn for yourself over your own grief or shift maybe kind of the stories you want to tell in the future, just sort of reflective lessons now that it's been in the world and had some critical acclaim and, and feedback from folk. I mean, outside of like sort of its success as a story or as a, you know, show, yeah. like I think it did demonstrate to me um personal writing is possible <laughs> i mean i i really kind of uh am dubious or, or sort of like my instinct dubious is too strong my personal instincts <laughs> as a writer are yeah. sort of in the opposite direction of sort of confessional like a kind of like directly going towards yeah. lived experience um and and i kind of really did that for this you know yeah. Um, and it really yeah. worked out, you know, it, it really was, um, you know, they say, write what you know, or whatever, you know, can, so I think that like, yes, really committing to my lived experience here helped make it good. But even if it hadn't turned out 
as sick like even if it even if it didn't work like even if there were more like plot holes or whatever just um having written it i was like okay wow there's there's a lot of um just value to to trying to um write out your own experience which i'm sure there's writers out there who are like yeah obviously it's a like you know that wasn't um traditionally my orientation to it right and and so much of it wasn't my experience i didn't grow up going to church like i you know so much of this wasn't my experience but like really seeding that throughout uh was valuable and then yeah i mean it's been it's been it's been just i mean there's five of those user reviews on there among the dozens on the on the audible thing that like i mean this just sounds cheesy but like if only those five people listened to it, this thing would have been worth it. You know, like there's people who lost siblings to suicide and they talk about what the show meant to them. You know, there's pastors um, who just the, who this show speaks so much to the onus pastors feel because pastors have to be beyond reproach and strong, you know? And so just, I've had these like testimonials from a handful of listeners that just are so affirming um, to the value of the piece and that, you know, it, it took years to write and make this thing. And um, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's, it's, it's just silly, but like, it's a labor know, of love. And but also, no, I, it's not chilly at all, yeah. but to know that like all of that effort is, uh, is transforming people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it's just, and you, and it is always one that you never know, you know, you never know what yeah. it's going to, it's going to affect everybody differently and stuff, but I've just been truly deeply touched. Um, by the way, it has resonated with certain people. Yeah. Well, I think the six sermons in essence at a much grander scale, not to put them in the same category, does what I'm trying to do with this series, with my own podcast, which is to model honest, open, messy conversations about loss and grief and not preach, sorry for the pun, you know, down on us, but to 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 give us a conversation that looks like something that we either have had, which affirms us, or that we know is possible. Oh, maybe I could try that. Maybe I could do that. Maybe it's okay to feel that way, you know, and that is such a powerful gift. I mean, part of the reason I talk about this all the time, I talked about it in my TED Talk, is part of the reasons I think we suffer unnecessarily in our grief is that we don't see the full messiness and the full impact of our grief modeled around us in our shows, in our TV, in our conversations, in our families, in our churches, in our synagogues, right, in our temples. And so I really do think your show um, does such a beautiful job modeling the messy conversations and experiences that happen in the wake of profound loss. And that's, that's a gift. Yeah. And to your point, if it's five people or 5 million people, that's incredible because where we started our conversation around sort of generational trauma, I can't now even remember if that was on air or off air, but um, those five people maybe now have a different experience with their own loss and then how they'll show up in their families and their communities the next time they face a loss in a different way, in a more meaningful way. And then that begets um, how we end up shifting kind of our grief culture, particularly, I think, as it comes to death by suicide. So cheers to you for that. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. That's really meaningful because that, that is what I'm trying to do in this piece, you know? 
Um, so that yeah. means a lot. Yeah, you really do. You all um, need to set aside some time and download six sermons on Audible. Asa Merritt, thank you so much for joining me on Sneaky, A Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, no, likewise. This has been great. Thank you. I so appreciated this conversation with Asa today, and I hope you did too. Remember, you don't need to be a journalist or a professional writer to use the vehicle of writing to begin metabolizing your own grief. In fact, you can find healing in both the written and spoken word. If you'd like to learn more about the principles and practices of exploring your story in a healing way, I encourage you to check out my conversation with Dr. Annie Brewster entitled The Healing Power of Storytelling back in Season 3 in 2022. I also highly recommend her book of the same title, The Healing Power of Storytelling. You can find the link to buy her book and all those featured on this podcast at my Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast wish list on bookshop.org. While you're there, don't forget, you can also pre-order my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss. And when you do, don't forget to message me to get yourself that party invite. Oh, and this season, I've committed to releasing the unedited video version of these episodes on my new YouTube channel at Lisa Kefauver MSW. Thanks so much for listening today, my friends. If you found it helpful, don't forget to share this episode with others who might need it too. If you do it on socials, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And of course, if you loved the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Thanks to Mike Moody at Permanent Record for the audio engineering support and Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for providing the music. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>